Father, as we come to you today and we look at chapter 12 of Exodus, well, we really ought to be taking off our shoes because we are standing on holy ground. As we look at this wonderful picture that you give us here of of, uh, the death of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Lord, what a beautiful story this is. How much you teach us through this story about your foreknowledge, Lord, about your goodness, and mainly, Lord, about your grace that comes through the blood of Christ. We're so grateful for, for what you've done for us, Lord. So as we approach this study, Lord, I ask today, especially today, that through this study that we worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, that's the way we want to worship you all the time, Lord, based upon your word, not based upon who you we want you to be, but who you are, Lord, and you're more than we would ever could ever want you to be. You're so wonderful and so gracious, and we're so blessed to know you, and it's all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we get a picture of that today, Lord. So bless our study in a special way today. I just ask that in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. A man named Jeffrey Peterson moved to Lake Charles about three years ago. And he moved from North Dakota, and while he was in North Dakota, he had been through several blizzards, and so he knew something about wind, but uh, nothing like the winds he was going to experience when the eye wall of Hurricane Laura went over his home on August the 27th. When he got up that next morning, he looked around to see what the damage had been done, and he saw most of the businesses in his area, most of the homes in his area were totally destroyed. But for some reason, his home was spared. I mean, the only thing that happened to him was he lost a few shingles. He lost power and a few shingles. And when the news media saw that, this house standing all alone that had been spared, they came to him and they asked him, you know, What do you attribute uh, to your good fortune? And this is what he said. He said it was only by God's intervention that we weren't hurt and didn't have any any major damage. And so we are fortunate that the Lord shielded us for whatever reasons he chose. And he was right. He was very fortunate that the wrath of that storm, the eye of that storm that that, uh, did so much damage in southwest Louisiana, for some reason passed over him. And, and uh, by the grace of God, he was spared. Well, that's a picture of what the story we're going to be looking at today when we, when we come into to, uh, uh, the book of Exodus in chapter number 12. When we left off last time, uh, the Egyptians and the Israelites were about to face a storm greater than any hurricane. Uh, it was going to come in the form of the tenth plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn. And uh, it's a terrible plague. We're going to see that. But by the grace of God, the Israelites were spared uh, from the wrath of that great storm. And that's what we're going to be looking at, just how they were spared as we come to chapter number 12. Now let me, let's kind of set the setting here. Uh, a few weeks before the plague came, uh, on the first of, somewhere around the first of Nisan, which is the first month on the Jewish calendar. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses in the beginning, uh, at, uh, before the plague came, and this is what he said in verse number two. And this, he, 
he says, begin, pick up with me in chapter 12, verse number 2. And he says, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month on your calendar, the, the month of Nisan. It also shall be the first month of the year to you. And by that first there, it means the most important month of the year to do, year to you. Now, if you look at a Jewish calendar, if you look at the calendar from the Torah, you will see that the calendar begins with the month of Nisan. Uh, the month of Nisan is also called the month of Abib, and Abib is, is a description of the month because it means the opening of the ear. The opening of the ear, that's when the ears of the corn sprout in the spring, and so it's, it, it corresponds with our month of April. And, and so their new year on the Jewish calendar is the first of Nisan. But we know they celebrate another new year. That new year is coming up on September the 18th on our calendar. It's the, it's the first of Tishra. Uh, and that's called what? Rosh Hashanah. Uh, now, it sounds strange that they have two new years, but if you think about it, we do the same thing. Uh, that the, the Rosh Hashanah begins their civil year. And uh, the month of Nisan begins their calendar year. Uh, we do the same thing. January begins our calendar year. September begins our school year. Uh, most corporations begin their fiscal year in, in the, on the 1st of July. So we, we do something very similar to that. But it's interesting that the Lord says that the most important month and the most important new year for you is the 1st of Nisan. Because Nisan is going to be the, the most important time of your Life. Now, the Jews still see Rosh Hashanah as the most important day of the year, or actually as the second most important day of the year, because it begins what's called the 10 days of awe that lead up to Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement, and that is the most important day of the year to them. Now, why would that be the most important day of the year to them, the day of atonement? Because they are still blinded to the death of Jesus Christ. They are still living under law. And that's the most important day under law. Uh, but we know that the most important day on the calendar for us really is what? It's Easter. It's the month of April. It's during, it usually comes during, the, I think it always comes during the month of April for us. But, but sometimes during the month of April, April, we celebrate Easter. And one day when they see the Lord and they look upon him whom they've pierced, and they see those nail-scarred hands and those nail-scarred feet, they're going to see Nisan as the most important month of the year, just as God told them to do way back here in the book of Exodus. Now, let's let's go to this Passover observance, beginning in verse number 3. He says in verse number 3, Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of the month, every man... Now, watch who's involved in this. He speaks to the nation... And then he says, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. So how does God see the nation of Israel? God sees the nation of Israel the same way he sees the church. I think sometimes we misinterpret how God sees the church as some large organization that uh, lives across the world. Look at how he saw Israel here. He saw Israel as individuals, as he says, every man, he saw them as a nation, but he also saw them as a family. And I believe that's how God looks at the church. He looks at the church. I actually, actually think he sees the church four ways. He looks at the church and he sees us as a one big body. 
Then he looks at the church and he sees us as, as a family like we have here at Calvary Chapel. Then he sees our individual families. And then most importantly, God sees us as individuals. God sees every individual. He knows every individual. He knows what goes on in every individual's life. He sees and hears everything you do. He knows your every thought. He knows your thoughts even before you think your thoughts. Now, that's a terrible thought to think about if you think about it. So, so uh, he sees that. Uh, and, and, and so he's speaking to the nation here. He's speaking to the family. He's speaking to the, to the, to the individual. And then in verse number four, he says, And if the household is too small for the lamp, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it in accordance to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your, your count for the lamb. In other words, here's what he's saying. If you're a family that really likes to eat, and maybe you're a, you don't even have to be a large family if you really, really like to eat, then you just get one lamb for your family. But if you're a family who eats sparingly, and you're not a very large family, then you join up with another household. You might join up with two households, but you're going to take the lamb, and that whole lamb is going to be consumed. So you've got to make sure you're going to be able to consume that entire lamb. God didn't want to waste the lambs. And so, so uh, that's the way he set it up. Then in verse number 5, he, listen to what he says. And you, you, these ought to start ringing some bells in your head now. He says, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you, should, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the, whole congre- then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So you, you're going to take your lamb out at twilight. And this is before the temple and before the tabernacle. This is the first Passover. You're going you're to take your lamb out at twilight and you're going to kill that lamb. Now... The word lamb should certainly have rung a bell in your head, uh, in your souls, really, on, the, on the, some of the tremendous, tremendously important typology that we're going to see in this passage. Uh, right away you see some things that, that are very important. Because remember how Jesus was described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He said Jesus is our Passover lamb. It can't be any clearer than that. John the Baptist, when when he saw Jesus coming to the Jordan, remember what he said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Revelation chapter 7, when the saints are are sitting around or standing around the throne of God, uh, listen to how they're described. They're described as those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. I want you to flip with me, with me to one of these passages. Go with me to Revelation chapter 22, because I want you to see this. Because this, is, this gives us a full description of who this lamb is, who is our Passover lamb. Look at Revelation chapter 22 and go down to verse number 3. I love that first phrase there, and there shall be no more curse. Boy, we're living in a world right now that seems to be cursed. But there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, when you first look at that, you almost get the idea that there's two thrones. There's not two thrones. There's one throne. He said that there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall not serve them. Check the pronoun there. Serve him. 
him, what is, what is John telling us there? He's telling us that the Lamb of God on the throne is God. The Lamb, our Passover Lamb who died for us on a cross is none other than God. Now, uh, remember, we'll go back a little bit. I'm not going to take you there. So let's go back to the book of Exodus. But if you remember when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper for the, fir- for the first time. It wasn't an accident that he celebrated the Last Supper on Passover. And he made it clear that he was the Passover lamb that would be slaughtered for our sins. Because listen to what he said. And when he instituted that Lord's Supper, we all know it well. He said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he passed them the cup, and remember what he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you for the remission of sins. And so it's his blood. It's the blood. There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood for salvation. If you don't or haven't been touched by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you haven't been covered in the blood, how God does that, I don't know. But I believe it. And I know that he's done it for me. But if you haven't had that blood cover you, then you're not born again. Because the blood is everything. And we're going to see that in this passage. And if you, if, and I'm not going to go back there. But if you remember in Revelation chapter 13, Jesus was described as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, why, did, why was he described that way? Because God knew before the foundation of the world who the Passover lamb would be, that he himself would come down, empty himself of his glory, and become the Passover lamb. And so he was slain in God's eyes. This was the plan laid, we're told in the Bible, before the foundation of the world. And so in God's eyes, uh, uh, Jesus was slain before he created uh, the world. That's why Paul, I mean Peter at Pentecost said, the 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 death of Christ on the cross was the predetermined pur- happened by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That's why when we come back here to Exodus now, God can lay out this perfect type of Jesus Christ. That's that's how He could do that because this isn't something that He just kind of you know thought of along the way. This is something that He had planned to do before the foundation of the world. And right away, coming back now to Exodus chapter 12, right away we we see a couple of things of significance to this typology. Go with me to chapter 12, and let's go back to verse 3 for a second, and and here's what you see. It, It says in the instructions, Moses tells them to bring the lamb into their home on the 10th day of Nisan. And in verse 6, we're told that he's to be slaughtered on the 14th day of Nisan. So they had that little lamb in their house for five days. Now, you ever seen a little puppy? I mean, most of you haven't had a little lamb. But if you kept a puppy for five days, it's going to be really hard to get rid of him, isn't it? It would be really hard. Now, think about it. If you've had a little puppy and you've had him for five days... You go in there and slit that puppy's neck and take that blood and take it out and put it on your doorpost. See, that's why they kept it in the house for 
for five days. That's one of the reasons. They, that lamb became like a little pet to them. And every time they saw that lamb, they realized that that lamb was going to have to die so that death wouldn't enter their home. And so they got a little foretaste of the cost of their salvation by having that little lamb in their presence for those five days. And on the 14th day of Nisan, they took him out and they killed him and they took the blood and they put it on the lamppost, as we'll see here in just a minute. Now, it's amazing that how this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because on Palm Sunday, uh, on the 10th of Nisan, Jesus was presented to the nation of Israel as the Passover lamb. I mean, people talk about he was presented as the king of kings. He certainly was. But really, more than anything else, he was presented to them by God as their perfect sacrifice. And then for five days, they examined him. They had him in the temple, and they they drilled him with all sorts of questions and and, and tried to to trick him into into making some kind of mistake. And and, uh, for five days, they observed him and watched him. And then on the 14th day of Nisan, they slaughtered Jesus Christ. That slaughter began of Jesus Christ uh, for our sins. Now, there's something else you see in the the passage we just read. Look at verse number 5. The lamb is to be without blemish. What does it mean he's to be without blemish? That means he's not to have any scars. He's not to have any spots. That should ring a bell. Because remember how Jesus is described by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what he says. He says, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your uh, aimless conduct received by tradition from our fathers, from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, what happened to that little lamb? I mean, he had to be without blemish, but what happened when his throat was slit? He was scarred. I mean, he didn't live to see it, but he was scarred. When Jesus was presented as our Passover lamb, he was without blemish. He was without spot. He had no sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might have the righteousness of God. But all our sin was laid upon him, and on that cross he was blemished. And now he's scarred forever because of what he's done for us. I really believe that when we see Jesus in glory, we will see the scars on his hands and the scars on his feet. We will see those scars on his hands. They'll never be healed. He'll have those scars forever as a reminder to us of just what he's done for us. And then we we come to verse number 7, and I think we see the most important piece of typology uh, of the Passover there, and that's the blood. Look at verse number 7. And then he says, And they shall take some of the blood, and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Now, they put the blood on the lintel, they they put it on the doorpost, uh, and then when the Lord came that night, uh, that first Passover night, what he was looking for, he was looking for that blood. If they had the blood on on the doorpost and on the lintel, 
then he passed over and death did not enter their home. If they didn't have the blood, then, uh, then uh, death did enter their home. And, and that's certainly a type of what happens with us in our salvation. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 1, 7. He says, he says, in Christ through his blood, we have redemption, forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. It's the blood that saves us. Look, there is nothing but the blood that saves you. There's nothing but the blood that saves me. Whenever we try to add anything to the blood of Christ, we're trampling on that blood. We're nullifying. Paul says in Galatians, you nullify the work of the cross. You're saying that blood wasn't necessary. And that's why legalism is such a dangerous trap to fall into. And, and, it, and it's the temptation, a temptation the devil puts on all of us to try to get us into thinking somehow that we're the ones who have saved ourselves. We're somehow keeping our salvation. If we don't keep our salvation, we're going to lose our salvation. To me, that's a trap because there's nothing that saves you but the blood. And if you've taken that blood... And you've applied that blood to your soul. And God sees that blood on you. Now, you might be sitting here saying, now, that's a crazy thing to believe. That's what you got to believe. you gotta be, you got to believe that by faith. And, if you, and don't call me crazy because you'd be calling God crazy. Because God's the one who made it this way that we're saved through the blood. Why are we saved through the blood? Because we're told in Leviticus, the life is in the blood. Sin brings death, and we need life to overcome sin. And so the life's in the blood, so we're saved by the blood. And if you don't have the blood and you're trying to add, or you're trying to add something to the blood, then you've got a problem. You're exposed to death. You're exposed to eternal death. Now, uh, let's pick up in verse number 8. He says, Then they shall eat of the flesh on the night. i got to get some glasses. I'm working on it. Then they shall eat of the flesh on that night, roasted with fire, with unleavened bread. Now, that unleavened bread is very important. And with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain. You've got to eat the whole thing. You've got to eat all the unleavened bread. You've got to eat the herbs. You've got to eat the meat. You shall not let any of it remain until the morning. uh, And what remains of it in the morning, you shall burn with fire. So you're to eat it all. You're to partake of it all. You're to partake of all the lamb, all of the uh, bread, and all of the herbs. Now, here they have this little lamb that they've kept in their house for five days. And it's kind of a bittersweet thing because they're eating of the lamb and they're celebrating the fact that they're not going to die, that the death angel is going to pass over them. But when they see the meat that they're eating and they realize it's coming from that little lamb that they had to slaughter, that they became their little pet that they kept in their house, then they get a taste of the serious cost of redemption, just a taste. I mean, I, I think sometimes when we take the Lord's Supper, we take it so flippantly uh, and we don't take it, re- it thinking of the cost of our redemption. There should be some bitterness along with the sweetness of the Lord's Supper. It cost the Lord everything. It cost him his life to pay for our, our sin. 
It cost him a brutal death on the cross. And so Passover certainly was a celebration, and it, over the years it became a celebration. But it wasn't a celebration of the death of the lamb. It was a celebration that the death of the lamb had redeemed them from, from death. And when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a celebration. But it's not a celebration in the brutal murder of Jesus Christ. It's a celebration that the brutal murder of Jesus Christ redeemed us from our sins. And so see how it's both bitter and it's sweet. And when the Jews later on would observe this Passover uh, and they would eat of the bitter herbs, even today, they would tell you that the reason that uh, they eat of the bitter herbs is to remind them of their bitter times in bondage. And I think when we take the Lord's Supper, that's one of the things we should ponder. The bitter times we had in the bondage of sin. But also, the bitterness is not just that. The bitterness is the fact that they're killing a little lamb to observe this supper. The bitterness is also for us that, that the Lord Jesus had to die for our sins. And then also, if you look at this passage, very importantly in verse number 8, they ate of unleavened bread. And that unleavened bread is a type of Jesus Christ. Because leaven in the Bible is always a type of sin. And Jesus is unleavened bread. He is the bread of life. But he's unleavened bread. He's without sin. Over, remember over in John chapter 6, this, Jesus said this in, in, in that context. He said, most assuredly I say to you, Moses did, not, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then, he, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. That's what I say, Lord, that's the bread I want if it's going to give me life. And Jesus said to them, I am, one of those great I am statements. He said, I am the bread of life. Unleavened bread. Bread without sin. And, we, we, and when we feed on him, now again, some people are sitting there thinking, man, are you nuts? How do you feed on him? Well, you feed on him through worship and through prayer and through Bible study. I really believe mainly through his word. This, this word is unleavened bread. And you got to be careful with that because there's a lot of people who have put leaven in this bread. I was talking to somebody about that yesterday. And, and, and what happens, you change just a little bit of this Bible, you've got to start changing a lot of this Bible. That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own Bible, because they changed a few things, and then they had to change some more things, and some more things, and before you know it, they've got their own Bible. Mormons the same way. This Bible is inerrant, the inerrant bread of God. It's unleavened bread. And, and you can only understand it through the whole counsel of the word of God. You don't get it in a, in a piece here and there. You've got to partake of the whole thing. That's, what he, that's the type we're getting here. And, and then uh, in verse number 11 he says, and, and thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff on your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. In other words, you're to eat it with your departure. They were going to leave that night. So he's telling them, you're going to eat it with your departure in mind. What was their departure? They were leaving Egypt. They were leaving Egypt 
heading to the wilderness on their way to the promised land, on their way to eternal life with the Lord. That's the plan God had for them. That's the plan God has for you. When you take, when you first get saved, when you take that first Lord's Supper, when you take partake of that supper, you should eat that supper with your belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, ready to go out. Ready to go out from where? From this world. Egypt, again, is a type of the world. You're to leave this world behind. Now, you don't even have to move one step to do that. You've got to give up the things of this world for the things of God. You've got to turn your back on the things of the world and receive the things of God. And I'll tell you, the problem with most of us is we're way too worldly. We hadn't done this. And we're we're living in, we're still in Egypt. We hadn't even gotten to the wilderness. And once you leave Egypt, I kind of go back and forth between all three of them. But once you leave Egypt, you head to the wilderness and, and you stay there as long as you need to stay there. And then you head to the promised land. That's a victorious life in Jesus Christ. And that's where you're heading. And, and we're heading out and, and we should be girded up and we should be in the promised land as quickly as possible because that's where God wants us to have victory. That's where he wants us to serve him. And, 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 and a lot of us aren't serving him because we're still living back in Egypt or we're still living in the, in the, in the wilderness and we're, or we're going back and forth like I do a lot of times. And, and so you fail in your service. You know, I love what Samuel told the Israelites. And y'all have heard me use this verse before because it's one of my favorite verses. But, but remember what he told the Israelites when they were wanting a king and he, they got their king. He said, listen, above all, he says, you're to fear God and serve him in truth with all your heart. And listen to this last phrase. For consider what great things he has done for you. You know, when we take the Lord's Supper, that's what we need to do. We need to consider what great things he has done for us and move out, out of the wilderness, out of Egypt for sure, into the promised land and serve him with all our hearts. He deserves that, doesn't he? Then, Beginning in verse number 12, he says, I want you to watch the pronouns here. Watch the pronouns. Because I, if you watch the movie, The Ten Commandments, you're going to get some bad theology. Actually, it's not too bad, but you're going to get some bad theology there. Because there's this angel that goes from house to house killing all these people. Uh, listen, listen to the Lord's description of how this is going to happen. Watch the pronouns. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. And will I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. He had already been executing judgment on the gods of Egypt. We talked about that earlier. But now he's going to give the final judgment on the gods of Egypt because he's going to show who has power over life and who has power over death. You worship a false god, a false Christ. Let me tell you what. They don't have power over life and death. Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He has power over life, and he has power over death. And he's going to show them that. And he says, I will execute my judgment on them because I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. I am the true and living God. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And watch this. When I see the blood. 
When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You know who's looking on every soul right now to see what position they're in, in their faith? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm the one who looks at you. And I'm the one who determines whether or not you have the blood or you don't have the blood. And if you, but you got a choice. You've got to put the blood on the doorpost. You've got to receive Jesus Christ. And you've got to put your faith in that blood to save you. And when you do that, God sees that blood. And when your death comes, your death of your mortal body comes, you're going to be passed over. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? You're going to have victory in Christ and you're going to, you're going to be raised from the dead. You're going to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord because of one thing, one thing and one thing only, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says, where do I leave off here? So this day shall be to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast uh, by an everlasting ordinance. This is something we're to remember forever. Forever. We'll be doing the Lord's Supper forever. Now, you, the Jews have a problem. They don't, uh, later on, this Passover feast was observed at the tabernacle. It was observed at the temple. And the lambs were slaughtered there. They don't slaughter lambs today because they don't have a temple. They don't have a tabernacle. But this, but. God is clear here that this is an everlasting ordinance. So how is this ordinance kept now? It's kept through the Lord's Supper. Through the, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're keeping the Passover ordinance. We're celebrating the Passover. As often as you drink this blood, and it, I mean, uh, drink this wine and eat this blood, you celebrate my death until I come. And then we'll continue on celebrating his death throughout eternity because it's his death. It's only his death, only those nail-scarred hands and those nail-scarred feet that allow us to be with the Lord forever. Then in verse number 15, he says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from the nation of Israel. You'll be cut off from God's people. That's kind of scary. That seems kind of severe. I mean, just a little bit of leaven. That's why they were so diligent in cleaning their homes and making sure not so much there wasn't any COVID there, but there wasn't any leaven there. Uh, uh, They did everything they could to remove their homes of leaven because if leaven was found in their home, then they were, and, and who's looking at this? Who's the one observing this? It's God himself. So they had to remove all the leaven, and, and uh, if they didn't remove the leaven, then they were cut off from their people. Why is that? Because leaven is a type of sin. And as Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a little leaven spoils what? The whole lump. A little sin in our life spoils the whole lump. Thank goodness for the blood, because we all sin. But does that mean God doesn't want sin out of our lives? No, he wants that sin out of our lives. Without holiness, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, you, no man will see God. No person will see God without holiness. That sin has to be removed. Now, thank goodness by the Spirit of God, 
I can remove that sin, and I'm, that's a battle I'm going to fight the rest of my life. And by the grace of God, what happens when I do sin, the blood of Christ cleanses me from all unrighteousness. But I don't sin so that grace may abound. May it net, though, may it never be. I'm to try to rid sin by the power of the Spirit totally out of my life. Now, we fail at that. We fail at that, but if that's not our heart, then there's something wrong. And if, if you don't have a heart for holiness, there's something wrong. I, I, again, it's the blood that saves you. I was, again, talking to somebody else about this yesterday. There are things or there are indicators that you have the blood. And one of the blood, one of the indicators that you have the blood is that you won't sin out of your life. If you can continue in sin and be comfortable living in sin, I doubt you are covered in the blood. I'm not your judge. God's your judge. And I'm not saying that to judge you. I'm saying that to warn you. We, we, it, it, one of the things that you want, if you're a believer, is to be holy, as holy as God. You want to want, do, want to do what God wants you to do, not what you, you used to want to do. And your want-to-dos are changed if you're, you're born again. Then, picking up now in verse number 16, he says, On the first day there shall be a holy convocation and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you for you during this feast of unleavened bread no no manner of work shall be done on them but that which everyone must eat that only may be prepared for you uh, everyone has to eat of this bread and no manner of work is to be done and then it says so you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread uh, for that's what the Lord wants us to do. We'll stop there for a second. And uh, again, you notice two things here that he says. He says that everyone's to eat of the bread, and there's not to be any work done when, during this feast. And as believers, we celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread on a continual basis. I mean, we don't work for our salvation. We don't work for our sanctification. There's a lot of people who believe, I've, okay, I've been saved by grace, but I've got to sanctify myself by works. That's not true. You're sanctified by grace. You're sanctified by the blood. You're sanctified, uh, you're saved by the blood, and you're going to be glorified by the blood. You can't glorify yourself. It's not our works. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And as you receive Christ, so walk in him. So we receive Christ by faith. That faith was a gift of God, and we walk by that faith, which is a gift of God. That's why Paul says over and over again, especially in Galatians and Romans, by the works of the law, by, by the works of, of the law, no flesh will be justified. But we've received a new life, the Spirit of God, when we were saved. And we feed that new life with the unleavened bread of God. And everybody has to feed that life. Look, how many of you have to be told to eat today? I mean, do I need to tell any of you have to eat See, that's a problem with people, again, that don't have any desire to be in the Word of God. 
I mean, I shouldn't have to tell you. If I have to tell you to be in the word of God, that's legalism and it ain't, it's not going to work. You should be in the word of God because you're hungry. Because you're a child of God and you want to eat of that unleavened word of God. You should worship. You should pray. All of those things aren't legalistic things you do. You do those things because you have been born again. And everybody's to partake of that bread. And our salvation is not by works. Now, next thing Moses does, and I'm not going to go through all of this, he repeats the instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. And then he tells them, beginning in verse number 26, flip with me there, he says, And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our household. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Parents, did you catch what he said there? What's going to happen? He's saying to Moses and Moses is saying to the children of Israel, when your kids see you observing this Passover supper, They're going to ask you, why in the world are you doing this? What's it all about? And what an opportunity to school your kids in the things of the Lord, in the most important things of the Lord. I know that happens to parents when we take the Lord's Supper. The children look at us and we're drinking grape juice and we're drinking bread and we're saying a word or two over the bread and the grape juice and in in the early church they actually had a dinner and 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 i'm sure the children then and the children now are going to ask you why do you do this what's it all about and you've got to be ready to give them an answer and that answer is this that that we're partaking of this this grape juice because we believe it represents the blood of Jesus Christ. We're partaking of this bread because we believe it represents his broken body. And it's through his, his shed blood and his broken body that we're passed over from death and we receive eternal life. And, and it's simple. But some parents fail to do that. And what a witnessing opportunity that is with your children to observe the Lord's Supper. I wouldn't observe it with them until they're saved. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. But but uh, but but when they but when you're taking it and 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 they see you taking it, they're at some point they're going to ask you and and you're going to be able to tell them. So anyway, he says they, they all observed the feast. They all observed. They they killed the lamb, put the blood on the uh, on the doorpost. And uh, in verse number 28 it says, then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, and so they did. And that very night, that very night, it came to pass at midnight that the Lord, Jehovah, struck all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. That's the same God as the New Testament. It's the same God as the Passover lamb. He's the one who struck all of Egypt. Now, that might sound cruel to you. It might sound cruel to you when you read the, uh, all the, the bowls and 
and, and trumpets and all the terrible things that take place during the great, tribula- great tribulation. But it's the same lamb who is the Passover lamb. And God struck Egypt that night because they refused to repent and turn to the Lord. We saw the process. They hardened their hearts against the Lord. 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 And then their hearts became hard. And then the Lord hardened their hearts. And then the Lord set it in stone for most of those Egyptians. I think several of them were saved. I think there were several Egyptians who put the blood on their doorposts. They had seen the power and glory of God and they became believers. We're going to see some of them leave here in a minute with the Israelites. But most of them died. But God had given them a chance. Over and over again, he gave them a chance. The wages of sin is death. He set it up that way. Because sin is death. Sin causes death. Look at this country. What's going on now, and it is all a result of sin. Just imagine if it goes on out doing that crazy stuff even further for another hundred years, what it's going to be like. And it's all the result of sin. God wants to stop sin, and the only way he can stop sin is to kill it. And kill the sinner at some point. If the sinner won't repent. And that's what he does with the Egyptians here. And, and he, he strikes them. Uh, all the firstborn of the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne. Notice how he's described. He thought he was on a throne. He thought he had the power over life. He didn't have the power over life. His firstborn son, the heir to his throne, died that very night. And it sounds so horrific, and it was horrific. From the firstborn of his throne to the firstborn of the slave or the captive who was in the dungeon, the, guy, the people in prison, the firstborn who was in prison, they all died too. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And again, that sounds cruel. And, and, and you almost feel sorry for Pharaoh here, but he's lost his firstborn son. And, and he gets up and he goes out. It says, so Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in all of Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. A house without the blood. There was not one of those houses where there was not at least one person dead. How horrific was that? Then he called for Moses. He's finally going to bend his knee to the Lord, at least temporarily. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night, and he said to him, Rise and go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Also, take your flocks and your herds and as you have said, and be gone. Then watch how he ends this. And, and let me retranslate it just a little bit to, to what I think it should say. And pray for me also. Pray for me also. That's a difficult thing to do. But I don't think Moses had a problem with that. Because Moses had a firstborn son too. His name was Goshen. And he was inside the house with Moses when that death angel or when the Lord passed over to kill the firstborn. And it had to be a frightful thing. You're, you're trusted in that blood. You're trusting that blood on the doorpost. And they had to be wondered if it, if it was gonna if it was gonna hold true, if Goshen was gonna even live because he was his firstborn son, and he did live. 
And Moses could hear the cries throughout Egypt and, and of all the people who were losing their firstborn sons. And I, I'm sure he had empathy for Pharaoh at this point. And, and when Pharaoh said, hey, please pray for me, I think Moses prayed for him. No doubt, I, I think he prayed for him. Somebody comes to me, and, and I, from time to time people do that, and they ask me, I, I guess because I'm a pastor, they, they ask me to pray for them. And I know they're unsaved, and they ask me to pray for them. And, 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 and I want to say, it's not going to work. I'll pray for you, but it's not going to work. I mean, I, I, really what I need to pray is you get saved. You don't need me praying for you. You need to be praying for yourself, and you can only pray for yourself if you have a relationship with the Lord. Now, the Lord will hear your prayers, so maybe you should pray, but, but I, I, you're probably not going to get the answer you want if you don't know the Lord. What you need to do is repent. What Pharaoh needed to do was repent. And Moses, I think, had told him that, and, and, and I think he knew that, and at this time Moses just said, you know, I'll pray for you. I feel for you. It's got to be tough. And then pick up in, we pick up in the last part of it, and it says, And the Egyptians urged the people, they got up that morning, all the dead, and that they might send the Israelites out of the land. They, they, they told the leaders, you've got to get them out of here. You've got to get them out of here. We can't go on like this. For they said, we shall all be dead if this goes on. So the people, the Israelites took their dough. Before, I mean, they didn't even wait to leaven their dough, let their bread rise. They, they were done with the Feast of Unleavened Bread so they could leaven their bread, but they didn't wait for it to rise. So the people took their dough before it was even leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the, to the word of Moses, and they had asked uh, from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they had requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now that sounds kind of bad, but these were back wages for 150 years of slavery where, where, the, where the Israelites had worked for them for nothing. And so, so they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. We're going to see Succoth later on. That means Booth. It's a ta- little town right outside of uh, this area. And uh, it's right on the border of, of Egypt and the wilderness. And so, so uh, they would cel- later celebrate the Feast of Booths. Feast of Sukkot, uh, and uh, there was about 600,000 men on foot besides the children and besides the women. So, that, so somewhere between two and three million Israelites made this exodus. And a mixed multitude went up with them also, and the flocks of the herds, a great deal of livestock, and they baked unleavened bread cakes and dough, which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. That's interesting. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years on that very same day. Very same day of what? We'll talk about that in just a second. It came to pass that all the armies or all the hosts of the Lord, all the Israelites, went out from the land of Egypt, and the exodus had begun. That first Passover, that day of the exodus, was on 1446 B.C. You go back 
exactly 430 years to the same day, and that's the day Abraham became a believer. In Genesis chapter 15, 6, when it said he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You go forward to, ex- to the sa- very same day on, in April on the 14th of Nisan and on, on, uh, uh, in the year 33 A.D. And that's the very same day that our Passover lamb died on a cross for the sins of the Israelites, for the sins of Abraham, for the sins of every person who's ever been born on this earth. And those who believe in that blood that was shed for us, who have put our faith in that blood, uh, we've been passed over by, from death by what he's done for us. And we can look back and we can see those events, all those events, the death of Christ, the exodus, Abraham receiving God by faith. We can go back and we can see all those as historical events. The Lord, who is omniscient, could go forward and see all of those as historical events. That's why he could give us this exact representation here of of uh, the Jesus Christ in this observance of the Passover. Now, as we finish up, and we're going to finish up here pretty quick, he says, uh, Mo- uh, Moses gives us, I'm not going to go through all of them, we don't have time. Moses gives a few more ordinances related to the Passover. Uh, one of the ordinances he gives is that, that strangers and slaves uh, can't eat of the Passover unless they've been circumcised. If they get circumcised, they can't eat of the Passover. Now, there's a lesson of that for us because that Passover is a type of the lights of the Lord's Supper. So, really, only those who are born again should partake of the Lord's Supper. And, and uh, the main reason for that, I don't really, we don't really police that like some churches do. Some churches have closed communion. They only allow those who are members of their church, who they know have been baptized and on their records to be to take partake of the Lord's Supper. We, we have what we call open communion, but open communion is not open to people who aren't born again. Now, you want to take it, take it. But if you take it and you're not born again, you're bringing judgment upon yourself. Was what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because what you're doing when you partake of the Lord's Supper and you looking at the blood and you're looking at the body and you're saying, these are nice, but I'm not going to appropriate these to my life. I'm going to go on and still live like I've been living. What you're doing, you're trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ and you bring judgment upon yourself. You bring judgment on yourself because you don't believe. If, if you're taking the Lord's Supper, you take it because you believe in that blood. You believe in that wine represents the blood. You believe that that bread represents his broken body and you don't bring judgment on yourself. Uh, one other thing that that we see right here, uh, very important, and, and I hate to, I'm running out of time, and I, I wanted to give this a little more time, but, but look with me in verse number 46. It, it says that not, it almost looks like an afterthought here. It says not one of the bones of the lamb is to be broken. Not one bone is to be broken. 
Isn't that interesting? Why, why, why did God say you can't break the bones? I mean, I mean, even after you ate the lamb, you couldn't break the bones. Why could you not break the bones? Well, we know why, don't we? Because you remember when Jesus and the two thieves were hanging on the cross and it was, the Sabbath was about to come and the Pharisees says, hey, we've got to do something about this. Uh, uh, we've got to, they, they've got to die before the Sabbath because it will defile our Sabbath if they're still alive hanging on that cross, so we want them dead. And, and uh, the reason they, they told them to break their bones and the reason they did went to break their bones was that was part of the pain of being on the cross. In order to breathe, in order to breathe when they were hanging on that cross, they had to lift themselves up with those nailed, their feet nailed to the cross. They had to lift themselves up with their hands, with the pain in their hands and the pain in their feet in order to breathe. And so when their bones, their le- bones of the leg weren't broken, they couldn't breathe anymore. And so they suffocated. And so they, they were told, the soldiers were told to go and break their legs. And, and we're told in John chapter 19, 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Christ? And then in verse number, actually it's a very ugly picture that's beautiful in the sense that he did all of that for us. Then in verse number 50, thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on the very same day that the Lord brought the children out of Israel, uh, I'm sorry, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. And what a glorious day that was. A day marked in their history. When they left Egypt, they left the world, and they headed to the promised land on the way to eternity. That's really what their journey was all about. What a glorious day it was when we first appropriated that blood to our lives, and we made a decision to leave this world, head to the promise, to the wilderness and into the promised land on our way to eternity with Jesus Christ. You know, I, I, I got to try to make sure that we understand this. And I, 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 I feel like everybody does. But then when we go and live out our practical life, do we really understand what all of this means? So I want to go back to this Passover scene for just a second as we finish up. On the night the Lord came to Egypt to kill the firstborn, he didn't look into each home to see what the people were doing, whether they were doing good things or whether they were doing bad things. He didn't check a list to see if they'd been naughty or nice. I mean, he didn't, he didn't check their credit scores. Thank goodness for some of you. I'm joking. I don't know anybody's credit scores. He didn't check their voting records to see if they voted Republican or Democrat. He didn't look at their bank accounts to see if they were rich or if they were poor. He didn't even check their giving records to see what they had given to the local synagogues. He didn't check their Torahs to see if there was still silver on the outside. You know, I see sometimes people leave their Bibles in here. That's something you shouldn't do if you still got silver on the outside because it tells me something about you. You don't read your Bible very much. I know, I know when I've 
tease somebody about that, they say, oh, my, the Bible I read at home. This is just the one I bring to church. But God wasn't checking that. He, he, didn't, he didn't check their prayer logs to make sure they had prayed three times a day. The Lord looked at one thing and one thing only. And that was the blood on their, door, on, on their doorpost and the lintel. If they had the blood, they were spared. If they didn't have the blood, death entered their home. That's the same thing the Lord's still looking for today when he sends judgment on a nation or on a family or on an individual. He's looking for the blood. And not the blood of some ordinary lamb. He's looking for the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the very blood of God. Without it, I don't care what good you've done or you will do. You're going to perish. With it, I don't care what evil you've done or what you do. You're going to be spared. And it's all a matter of faith. If there was some Israelite or Egyptian who said, oh, man, you've got to be kidding. Put, put blood on the doorpost and on the lintel, and that somehow is going to save you. I'm not going to do that. That's silly. But when, that, when the Lord came that night to strike the firstborn, death was going to enter their home. But if a person believed, and by faith, he put that blood, and it might have seemed silly to him, but he put that blood on the lintel and on the doorpost. Didn't seem silly to him, I don't think, at this point, after watching him acting nine plagues before that. And that's maybe one of the reasons there were those nine plagues leading up to this last plague. But if they put that blood on their doorpost, then they were spared. Now, I don't know about you, but that's really, really good news to me. That's why they call it the gospel. Because I've done some pretty bad things in my life. I still do or at least think some pretty bad things. I do some bad things. I do things that are deserving of death. When I think of somebody, I want to kill somebody in traffic, that's not, I know I make light of that, but it's serious business. That's murder in God's eyes. I wouldn't murder them. Given the right circumstances, I wouldn't murder them. Well, I thank goodness for that blood. I thank goodness that I've been washed in the blood and that that's what God sees when he looks at me. He sees the blood. Now, he certainly sees the other stuff, too, and he wants to get that out of my life, but he sees the blood, and that's what's going to get me all the way home to glory. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And I am so grateful for that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank him. Father, we thank you for the blood. We thank you for what you've done for us through your blood. We are so blessed to have been drawn by you into your kingdom through the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing else can save us but that. Lord, I I just ask now that that we're saved, that we gird up our loins, and, and Lord, we put on our belts and and we go out and we serve you and as, as best we can because we want to consider what great things you've done for us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what a, what a 
marvelous, wonderful work you did on that cross. Thank you, Lord. We thank you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.